morning to you all. This morning's reading is from John 1 verses 1 to 18. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life. And in that life was the light of man. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of him, born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testifies concerning him. He cries out, saying, This is he of whom I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me, because he was before me. From the fullness of his grace, We have all received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. microphone is switched on okay thank you thank you James for sharing that reading with us if I can just say a few preliminary things before looking at this uh, great topic the glory of God often uh, and I say this and I think I've said it before here when preaching not everything that's said in the sermon 
you will necessarily feel is for you or take to yourself. And uh, sometimes in a sermon you find your mind wandering a little bit here and there. You do if you're human anyway. Um, but every now and then God says something that's for you. At this lovely time of the year, the harvest time, when driving around the outskirts of Tamworth, seeing those fields full of corn and such forth, some of them harvested, I'm always reminded of the, the book of Ruth in the Old Testament, where Ruth uh, and her, she was a Moabitess, and her mother-in-law, Naomi, was bringing her back from Moab and... Uh, Naomi returning to Israel, the land of her birth. And uh, we find Ruth gleaning in the fields, you'll remember the story, just picking up the oddments that were left behind. But Boaz, who was the, uh, the farmer, Boaz, who owned all the fields, he was determined just to catch the attention of Ruth, and he ordered some of his... Um, Laborers, just every now and then, just drop a handful of corn near to Ruth so that she picks it up. Some of the old uh, Scottish preachers used to refer to that as um, hands full of purpose, meaning little things that would catch the attention. So that's just an illustration of what God might do in this uh, harvest season. He might just drop some little pieces of corn in your path just for a special reason not for the whole congregation but but just for you I've appreciated the opportunity to to share with you this morning I just come now as a, a member of the fellowship here and wanting to uh, share from the word of God with you in this very interesting series about God's character God is great, God is good. Uh, next week with Martin, God is gracious. Today, uh, the glory of God. Uh, glory is quite a, a common word in the Bible, actually. If you, as you read through the Bible, it's there all the while, isn't it? But in, in different ways and, and forms. And it, it's used often by us today in, in, in a different sense. Of course, it has this... Uh, concept of majesty about it doesn't it for thine is the kingdom the power and the glory forever and ever amen and that's sometimes taken up in the secular world with all these medals we're winning the national anthems being sung almost it's going to be a bit tedious um, <laughs> make her victorious um, yes someone tell me how it goes <laughs> That's right, uh, and glorious. Uh, age is catching up on me these days. But you can see that the term glory is one to do with majesty, but as we've already experienced this morning, and, and Simon's been leading us uh, in, in the choruses and the, the hymns and the worship, it's, it's a common expression within our sense of worship of God, isn't it? So it's, it's there. And... Uh, I, my background is very much at times within the traditional Pentecostal churches, especially in, in multicultural Birmingham where you could be preaching and people would shout out glory <laughs> uh, and praise the Lord, of course. So it, it, 
it has its sort of different uses and uh, it, it implies worth as we know and the the word worship comes from that old English word meaning worth, worth script, worship, something that's worthy of you saying something special or recognizing something special. In the case of the, the way the Bible deals with it in terms of God, it's often associated, and this is the, the area that I'm wanting to develop really through the course of this talk, it's associated with appearance. God is glorious. And uh, it's a descriptive term of how, you might say, how God looks. It's quite a, a tricky question. Although the word uh, God and glory is fairly common to us, if you get a youngster who comes to you and says, what does God look like? It's quite a difficult question to deal with isn't it I know there are answers that are coming to your mind and hopefully will be developed I, during the course of this talk I want to in many ways bring in personal reminiscences here and there because uh, in, in a sense Christine and I have both reached a stage now where we've stepped back from a, a, almost a lifelong involvement in Christian work, pastoral and Bible college and all kinds of other things. Um, so a few reminiscences will, will be coming in here and there. But as well, I want to, especially towards the end of the talk, just try and apply things to the different, um, almost like different age groups within the church, the young, the middle-aged, the old, you know, sort of some practical application that will really apply just to uh, elements within the life and fellowship of this church and uh, certainly the life groups that are continuing I've put a few um, uh, questions and discussion points that will be used in the life groups that will enable you to take up some of those issues that I raise uh, and talk about them more thoroughly and, and more closely so how do we visualize God uh, how do we portray God In the Old Testament, of course, uh, God is often simply shown as a, almost a great cloud of, of glory. Uh, Martin at the back there is going to be putting overheads for some of the texts that I shall quote, not all of them, but uh, one that you're all familiar with, of course, is Exodus 24, verses 15 to 18, where Moses goes up uh, the mountain and um, Mount Sinai and he has this wonderful experience of, of God but God is, is really in many sense there like a great cloud of, of glory I'll just read those verses with you as you see them on the overhead from Exodus 24 Moses went up on the mountain the cloud covered it and the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai for six days the cloud covered the mountain and on the seventh day the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud to the Israelites the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on the top of the mountain and then Moses 
entered the cloud as he went up the mountain and he stayed on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. You remember when he came down from the mountain, such was that sort of strength of glory that his face, you couldn't really look at it. He had to wear a veil uh, so that people could actually talk with him. That's a very powerful image, isn't it, of the of the glory of God. Interestingly, uh, Christine and I, like many of you, have done all kinds of different visits to different parts of the world, and particularly to Bible lands. And um, before the present um, security problems in the Middle East, we were in the Sinai for quite a while and visiting the places where Moses visited. And um, very interesting, very hot. Um, a group said they were going to climb Mount Sinai one day. Would we like to join them? So we decided we would climb Sinai, which is quite a, a high mountain in the mountainous areas of, of the Sinai Peninsula. And uh, so that's something we were going to do. We were younger then. And um, they said, well, the only thing about this climb, we, we want to get to the top of the mountain when dawn breaks so that you'll see the glory of the sun shining, you know, a bit like Moses. Um, so that means you're going to have to set off at about two in the morning when it's thoroughly dark and it's, it's two or three hours to get up to the top of uh, Sinai. And they said in order to help you, uh, the first part of the journey, which is obviously with no tracks for vehicles, will be by camel. So you'll all get on a camel uh, in the dark and you, the camels know the way, the Bedouins will be around, they'll be kind of guiding you a little bit, but off you'll go. Uh, and it, it was quite an experience, because once you get onto your individual camel, then you, you can't see who's around you, you lose track of who you're with, you just hear voices backwards and, and behind you, and away you go for quite a journey. And the camels are just picking their way through the lower slopes, and the idea being that you eventually get to a place where you will dismount and, and, and you do the final kind of scrambling and getting to the top just in time for dawn to break um, and I don't know whether I've told you this story before but the camel that I was on whether it felt that there was something not special about me but getting near to the top of the mountain because um, as we approach that sort of stage where we begin to get to the more rugged areas the camel as camels do you know they kind of kneel down uh, uh, forwards and my camel knelt down and then it rolled on its side <laughs> and pitched me off into the uh, into the rubble at the side had it had gone the other way I would have got back to base camp very quickly <laughs> fortunately it, it didn't it was in the total darkness uh, but a lovely uh, sort of starlit night so it was, there was that element to it now, whether that camel sensed there was something about that mountain that was very special, but then, fortunately, I was fitter in those days, able to stand what had happened, and uh, a Bedouin appeared from out of nowhere with another camel and kind of indicated I should get on that, and that was it, I carried on. Um, but when we got to the top, it was very beautiful, uh, and the sun was just breaking, and you could see all the other mountains around. And it was quite special to, to be in the place where Moses had received the Ten Commandments and things like that. But we didn't see anything of, 
of the glory that was described and has been described in, in that passage that we've just read. And there are other passages in the Old Testament where this sort of sense of, uh, of, of God almost being, as one of the hymns puts it, uh, immortal, invisible, God only wise, in light inaccessible, hid from our eyes. That's the kind of Old Testament view of God, isn't it, in a way? Uh, the Ancient of Days. Um, when the Israelites, had, many, many years, of course, after Moses, when the Israelites had been settled into their territory there and the kingdoms of uh, uh, Judah particularly had been formed and uh, temple built, you remember how Solomon had this great dedication ceremony for the permanent site of the temple, uh, the, the ruins of which... Uh, are in the Temple Mount area of uh, Jerusalem today and uh, certainly uh, Dave and Althea know all about that having lived very close to it and worked there in the, uh, the, the, the Tomb of Jesus area. But um, we can read about what Solomon uh, was involved with in uh, 2 Chronicles 7 verses 1 to 3 and you'll see that on the overhead as well and again it's this almost same sense of what happened with, with Moses so 2 Chronicles 7 and when Solomon had finished praying his prayers of dedication for the permanent building of the temple fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests could not enter the temple of the Lord because of the glory, the, Lord, the glory of the Lord had filled it. When all the Israelites saw the fire coming down and the glory of the Lord above the temple, they knelt on the pavement with their faces to the ground and they worshipped and gave thanks to God saying, He is good, his love endures forever so in some senses the Old Testament emphasis upon if you like describing God is one almost of not being able to describe him it's glorious yes but that glory is very difficult to convey and um, you can well imagine trying to explain to someone today well God is glorious in that way it just doesn't it isn't particularly uh, helpful. But of course at the, those particular times um, for God to have been described or even made in the image of an idol would have been a very um, belittling description of God. And many of the idols were very crude in their, the way that they were made and of course they were made out of just uh, human materials so that sense of glory did lift God above that. It, uh, the sense of holiness that came from it, of course, too, uh, separated the, the God of Israel, if you like, from some of the, uh, the sinfulness of religion that was found in the days. There was, immorality was very common within the, the, the ways of worship uh, at that time. So there is a sense in which this idea of 
of uh, immortal, invisible, God only wise, in light, inaccessible, etc., hid from our eyes, is a, was a way of saying our God is different. And that was very much uh, an Old Testament emphasis. But when we come into the New Testament, and we've read from the New Testament this morning, we find that in many ways the human face of God is now being revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. That's quite amazing. That chapter that James uh, read from to us, it's a, it's, it's a very wonderful chapter, isn't it? A very moving chapter. And uh, we find there how that uh, Jesus is described in terms of his being uh, in the very image of God and uh, revealing God's glory. And I just remind you of some of those verses. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us and we have seen his glory. The glory of the only begotten son of God who was uh, close to God, face to face with God. Now we're beginning to get actually a view of God that is, if you like, more describable and more understandable. No one has seen God at any time, says uh, John in writing this, but uh, the uh, only begotten of the Father, who is Jesus, has made him known. Later on in John's Gospel, and here it will come up on the overhead, in John chapter 14 and verses 6 to 9, this is towards the end of Jesus' ministry, Jesus has begun to say to those people who were listening to him, his disciples and others, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. And from now on you do know him and have seen him. And Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Now there we're beginning to get something of an insight into what Jesus is all about, isn't it? Now we are beginning to say, yes, we can describe God more fully, not just as a cloud of glory, but beginning to describe Jesus and uh, certainly this concept of Jesus being the image of God is one that appears from time to time in the New Testament but not so much the visual appearance of Jesus being like God but what Jesus did rather than just how he looked it's interesting that we don't really have a lot of idea about the, the personal appearance of Jesus. I know that um, you do get these sort of um, images, and we're all familiar with the one that's been shown to us a lot in the, the Rio games, haven't we, of, of, of Christ, uh, that statue. Uh, and that's almost a traditional view of Jesus, isn't it? Um, one of my sisters went to an Anglican church where 
she said to me, you know the people feel our vicar looks like Jesus. <laughs> I, I knew the vicar quite well and in many ways, yes, he looked a bit like that statue, you know, he was tall, he had a long sort of blondish hair and he had a, a beard and, and what have you. But I, I knew him well and he told me all about his conversion, how that he'd been a drunkard and all sorts in his youth and different things. So that little part fell away but um, <laughs> knowing, knowing how Jesus actually physically looked he would have looked like any other Jewish person at, at the time um, and there, there have been early portraits some of which may, may reflect it there's, there's one tradition may or may not be true that the uh, that Luke, the gospel writer, Dr. Luke, um, from stories he'd heard of Jesus, he never himself met Jesus personally, Luke was quite a gifted painter. And, and there are paintings, supposedly by Luke, that give you some idea of how Jesus looked. But the, the thing that we're trying to understand here in thinking of the glory of God and how Jesus shows the glory of God is not so much how Jesus looked but what Jesus did in John chapter 17 and this will come up on the overhead John chapter 17 Jesus is giving his kind of final uh, sayings to his disciples and his promise to pray with them and for them and uh, his prayer begins, this is John 17 and verses 1 to 5. Jesus said this and he looked towards heaven and he prayed, Father, the time has come, and I notice this phrase, glorify your son, that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might, have, might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on the earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. So what we're seeing there is that when we talk about Jesus as revealing God and in a sense what the glory of God is all about in many ways we're reflecting on those significant events surrounding Jesus in his life, his ministry, his teaching etc. He was the word become flesh and at his birth as we know at Christmas uh, there were the angels saying glory to God in the highest and here is that word becoming flesh, the incarnation of Jesus. But then with his death and his resurrection and with his ascension, with his giving of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, and lastly with his return when he will return in glory, they are the areas of God being described in his glory that Jesus himself brought about by what he did rather than how he himself looked. It was interesting that just coming back to that occasion that we climbed Sinai onto the top and it was 
daybreak, etc. Um, the leader of that group who was taking us up there had brought with him a travelling communion set. And there on the top of Sinai, now instead of being, uh, if you like, uh, surrounded by glory in, in the way that Moses was, now, right on that very place, we spoke about the one who said, this is my body which is broken for you, this is my blood which is shed for you, and where the Apostle Paul added, and when you do this, you will show the Lord's death until he comes. That, that's the real meaning of being on the top of Sinai in some senses, isn't it? It's not this uh, idea of glory that hides, but something that reveals the love and the grace of God uh, that Jesus himself came to show. But interestingly... And, and this becomes, I think, more difficult for us to grasp and to perhaps uh, take on board. Not only does Jesus show the glory of God, but in a way, God's purpose for mankind was that we should show the glory of God as well. You remember the stories in Genesis about the beginnings of, of mankind. God said, let us make mankind in our own image male and female he made them in other words the, the, uh, I know sometimes that there are many who say we shouldn't just put human beings on a pedestal as though they're greater than the animals etc but biblically there was a very real purpose for humanity that God intended it was that uh, the, if you like humanity was to display the glory of God course sadly as we know that wasn't to be the case human sinfulness came in and the verse that we often hear quoted in evangelistic meetings all have sinned and, and what's the result of that have come short of the glory of God in other words the purpose that God has for us has been lost and set aside and yet that was the original intention uh, of God, that we should show that glory. The psalmist, Psalm 8, uh, what is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man, you made him a little lower than the angels, and yet crowned him, still talking about humanity, crowned him with glory and honor. That's the, the whole intention, if you like, of, of our reflecting the glory of God. In many ways, I, when we see that statue uh, in Rio, and it is a very, it's a very powerful image, isn't it? Without a doubt, and I think we as Christians are very fortunate that that is being shown worldwide. Uh, and you'll know, and I give the uh, commentators who often reflect on it, they do, they give it its full title. It's not just a statue of Christ, is it? It's Christ the Redeemer, is the actual description of that so Christ who has come to redeem and in redemption for mankind there will be that opportunity as it were to once again as human beings to start to reflect the glory of God that's a very powerful story isn't it that's what the gospel uh, is all about and of course um, Paul in his epistles begins to 
uh, pick up on some of this. In Philippians 2, 6 to 11, and you'll see that on the screen as it, it comes on, uh, Paul talks about how Jesus has come and not held on to equality with God, made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Now that, that's an important understanding of Jesus. He wasn't, he wasn't just an angel. Um, and sadly sometimes the cult groups or the groups on the fringe of the Christian faith, they, they, the last thing they want to do is to recognize the divinity of Jesus. But Jesus was truly divine, but he became truly man. He was one with us. His humanity was not a fake humanity. It was a real humanity. And so the Apostle Paul goes on about Jesus humbling himself, becoming obedient to death, and then the, the, the glory comes in. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So now, albeit not grasping everything, and I don't think we'll ever fully understand all these, what you might call the mysteries of our faith, here is uh, the gospel message that says, Jesus really has come to show us God as he really is. And you'll know, you've perhaps heard me say this before, and mankind as we ought to be. Jesus came to show us God as he really is, and ourselves as we ought to be, and as we can be, and one day in its fullest sense, as we shall be. Uh, you have this um, remarkable insight that Paul often is stressing when he writes his various epistles, in, certainly in Philippians, uh, and in uh, chapter 3, and verses 20 and 21, Paul talks, and he may have been referring to himself really, because Paul had a lot of ailments. He had bad eyesight and things like that, it appears. And um, he says that one day when Jesus Christ appears, because our citizenship is in a, he'll change our lowly bodies. In fact, in the authorized version, it says he'll change our vile bodies and make them like unto his glorious body. Now that, that's something uh, in the future, isn't it? But the glory that we're trying to describe in terms of God is not only found in Jesus, but it's found and going to be found, not in the same sense, we're not going to become God or anything like that, but we're going to become glorious in the sense that our bodies will be, if you like, perfected. There will be that new heaven and the new earth uh, and, of course, the second coming of Christ is, is that moment, if you like, of the beginnings of the final glory. So it's, it's interesting, isn't it? The, the church is something that represents and shows the glory of God. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul uses a, a kind of imagery of between uh, marriage and the church. He talks about husbands and wives and such forth and wives being very radiant and etc. And then he says, but I, I'm speaking about the church and he speaks about how the church is, is like a radiant bride. 
That's us he's talking about, you see, a radiant bride. And uh, here the glory of God is being shown to the world around us. And it's very difficult if people say to us, what's God like? And they say, well, God's like our church. Uh, you know, that we wouldn't want to quite say that, would we? But we don't want to, in a sense, underplay the fact that when we become Christians, we are being changed. Uh, and one day we shall be remarkably changed. And our church is a group of people who are kind of a radiant bride of Christ. It's, it's a wonderful image, isn't it? So Christ-likeness uh, is something that we strive towards, isn't it? In order to show the glory of God uh, as it is today. I know at one time... Um, people were wearing these bands weren't they what would Jesus do I don't know whether they still get worn what would Jesus do you see in other words what do I do in this situation and so this brings me then to those concluding points which I'll just touch on briefly that really try to bring some application to what I've been saying uh, here this morning in terms of uh, what, what is the part that Jesus played? What is the part we play in saying that there is glory to God? Which is not that idea of uh, uh, God is invisible, immortal, invisible, God only white, in light, inaccessible, hid from our eyes. Uh, it isn't that. That isn't our message. Uh, it's, we've moved beyond the Old Testament. We move beyond Sinai. We've now come into the era of Jesus and of the church. And uh, the return of Christ is the conclusion of it all. Part of it, of course, is the way we show the glory of Christ, and it's being done here in this church, is, is in witness and evangelism, isn't it? We try to show others what the gospel message is all about, and the Alpha courses are, are really going to be part of that uh, some of you may know that um, back in the 80s uh, uh, I was part of a, a quite a major Christian charity that was there to encourage evangelism and witness um, I won't tell you the name at the moment because it, 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 you'll see the significance of that but it was started by a man called Ken Frampton whose father had been a builder in post-war years uh, in the 30s, then in the post-Second World War years in London and had become very wealthy and prosperous, uh, new buildings going up, etc. Uh, after his death, his son Ken uh, took over the, the, the business. It was a, a very wealthy, prosperous family building business in London. Lots of properties that were owned there. Uh, and as you can imagine, uh, it, it was a really good uh, business to have. Ken was a committed Christian. Um, he took over after his father's death. He was not a builder, he was an accountant and a businessman, but he had this uh, idea of using some of the benefits that he had in, in Christian witness. Uh, he was, a, he was an, shall we say, a person with imagination. He was an innovator. And um, he, uh, he felt that uh, he should be getting alongside, using his wealth, as it were, to encourage those who are already involved in mission to, to do more and to glorify God in that way. 
And so he took the unusual step that he would take ten, a tenth of all his properties and what they were in value in terms of rents and leases, etc. Take a tenth, ten percent of them and set it aside in a Christian trust. And that revenue coming in year in, year out uh, from rents and leases, etc. would be used to get if you like, new things going to encourage existing things to be more able to do what they were doing. And uh, Ken got alongside a young George Verwer uh, and uh, a young American who had this vision for what we now know as Operation Mobilization. Uh, the idea of buying a couple of ships, Doulos and Logos, you know, and going around the world with literature, uh, uh, things like that. And uh, Ken came along and said to George, who was struggling a bit in those early days, look, um, do you want some premises in, 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 in South London as a major warehouse for all your literature? Right, well, you can have that. No, no rent, no, just it, it's something you can use and have. And so this great warehouse in Bromley was built and George Verwa uh, and others were kind of able from there to... Uh, Ken got behind the idea of building a, you know, a couple of ships. He did... That was some of the things he did. He, he met an American who was interested in Christians in sport and this has a kind of modern ring to it and so he, he got the Christians in sport movement going in this country mainly uh, initially amongst tennis players and golfers and then uh, much wider. Um, in the 50s and 60s he became aware that there were quite a lot of young people were getting caught up in the kind of uh, hippie culture, the, 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 the flower people and, and things of that nature. And he, he knew that there needed to be something that could... Uh, compensate for what young people felt they may be missing. So he decided to start a Christian music festival. And uh, he set up what was known as Greenbelt. Some of you may have heard of Greenbelt. It was one of the first ever Christian music festivals where you could go and sit in the mud and the rain and all the other things that are happening at the V Festival at the moment. Uh, and sort of, you know, that, that, was, that was the kind of innovation that he did. Um, well, remarkably, uh, when he needed some help, and I'm not quite sure how it happened, he invited me if I would go and be a, an assistant to him and, and project manage some of the things that were going on. At that time I was in Bible college teaching, I was set aside for a while and I went and joined him. And that's going on and continuing today. Ken is no longer with us, he died, but... Um, I'm still a trustee. Now, when, when he decided to put everything into that charity, he thought, what shall I call it? Um, because a lot of people would have called it after their own name, the Frampton Charity or something like that. That would have been quite acceptable. But he decided to call it the Deo Gloria Trust. And Deo Gloria, as you know, means to God be the glory. A remarkable way of describing what he wanted to do was to give glory to God by mission. It's still going today. I still have a general involvement with it. Uh, one of the things that we're doing at the moment, uh, 
through a, a, a major Christian agency is, is to encourage people who are traveling to work in London on the tubes to pray as they're sitting there on the train. So having not so much texts of the Bible on, on, on the um, sort of display areas that you sit looking at for half an hour when you're traveling to work, but, but kind of challenging ways about reflecting on your life and prayer. Prayers on the tube, as it were. It's, it, they're the kind of innovatory things that Deo Gloria Trust try to do. So the Alpha course here is, is part of that, isn't it? And, and that's great. But, and I draw things to a conclusion now, next year is the 500th anniversary of, uh, you know what? The Reformation beginning. Martin Luther nailing his... 95 Theses to the uh, public notice board on the church doorway. And that Reformation was, again, it was a sort of not so much bringing in something totally new, but getting back to the original. It was renovation rather than innovation, if you like. And one of the things that emerged eventually through all the different ways in which the emphases that... Um, Martin Luther and others brought on the Christian gospel uh, was the idea of the priesthood of all believers. That we, It's not just a few people in church who actually uh, should be doing things. Each of us as Christians, we've, in some sense, we're all seeking to offer glory to God in what we're doing. And that's not just in church life. Um, I remember reading a very startling comment by a former Archbishop of Canterbury who said, God is not just interested in religion. That's quite a powerful comment, isn't it? Our everyday lives, irrespective of a, a church connection, our everyday lives as Christians should be, in some senses, reflecting the glory of God. And um, we... This, I think, is one of the most challenging areas for us because so often when we're at work, we think, well, we're doing nothing for God. Or when we're, we've retired or whatever we're doing, we're doing nothing for God because I'm not in church or it's not a church activity. But actually, if as Christians we are people of honesty, reliability, trustworthiness, we don't have to keep adding, and by the way, I go to church, we just reflect the glory of God in the kind of people that we are. Now, I think that can be quite helpful to many of us because sometimes you think, I'm not doing anything. Uh, I, I have my job, I do this, etc. Uh, and I don't often get the chance to say to people anything about the Christian church, and any of it might be a bit embarrassing. The that doesn't matter. That's, in a sense, there is a way in which reflecting the glory of God is about just the kind of people we are. Very often people draw their own conclusions about us, especially in a, the way that they may know that we go to church anyway, but we're not actually trying to tell them all the while, we go to church, we go. You're just simply being a redeemed person reflecting the glory of God to a, an age where there's quite a bit of corruption and uh, everything else going on today, as you know, human sinfulness. With regard to other faiths that we're surrounded and how we deal with them and the glory of God. I was interested in uh, what Joy said a moment or two ago about when she went to her Alpha course and she felt, and there's more. And I think with 
with, with the, in the context of reflecting the glory of God in how we, if you like, come over to other faiths. It's not so much saying, oh, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, because there are many similarities. There's prayer, there's belief in God of some sort, uh, but it's rather saying, and there's more. It's no longer the God who is immortal, invisible, etc. It's in fact shown in Jesus Christ. And talking about Jesus and what you are. Not arguing, but just sharing. This is, this is what Jesus came to do. And this is, can be, as it were, uh, uh, bringing uh, new light. Young people who are going away to university, some of you, and I know you will be, and some of you will be studying science, you may be going with this feeling, oh, science and religion are the opposites. They're not. And there are many scientists who are Christians. And one of the things that they're often saying is simply this, that the more I learn about the world, or whatever aspects, the more I seem to know about God. It's as though science gives us a sense of answering the question why rather than just how, in the sense of we are now trying to find out about meaning as well as how things work. And so it is that we can begin to share very simply with others that there is a sense of awe and of wonder as we learn about the world in which we live, we are not at odds with that. Of course, you, you get um, some science groups and humanists like uh, Richard Dawkins who will try to say, yes, there's a very real fundamental difference. It's that you know the two shall never meet. But they're being, they're being very uh, quietly and firmly shown that's not the case and that so many Christians who are scientists would just say no no that that isn't the situation so the glory of God is about being able to sense awe and wonder in what God has done and especially in the person of Jesus Christ so we come then to conclude and I've got one final text on the board there which you can see it's a doxology from Jude 24 25 and it's the one that really gathers everything together for us here this morning. It's uh, simply a way of concluding, and it says this, To him who is able to keep us from falling and to pre present us before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to the only God our Saviour be glory, majesty, power and authority. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. The glory of God. Amen. Simon's going to come back and lead the band and I've asked if he will just, as a final song...